We've spent the last few weeks in what is our annual vision series. It's sort of a time for us as a family and a church to circle up around the table, so to speak, and remind one another what we're doing here and why. And last week, we ended the series proper, but I wanted to spend just one more Sunday adding something of a, a coda to our vision for the coming year. You see, we spent the first week of our vision series outlining a broad overview of our vision as a church. We want to practice the way of Jesus together. We want to do more than simply talk and sing about Jesus for an hour every weekend, but actually work together as a community to apprentice Jesus of Nazareth, to, like Levi just said, be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. The second week, we discussed the context in which we believe that vision is realized, which is community, both as a macro family here on a Sunday and as a collection of smaller families that we call Van City Communities who meet in homes every week. They share life and a meal, sit down to work through the practices of Jesus, what some people call the spiritual disciplines uh, via a guided curriculum. And then last week, we discussed the often chaotic nature of our current socio-political cultural moment. In a world of violence and political vitriol and digital addiction, we want to, as a community, rebel against the status quo. We want to reject commitment phobia and instead learn to practice faithfulness. We want to reject selfishness and the worship of achievement and digital addiction and instead practice discipline and self-denial. We want to reject the violent divisiveness of our host culture by making it our ambition to lead a quiet life of peaceful discipleship to Jesus. So if you missed a week along the way, go back and listen to the podcast, but that's a bit of an abridged synopsis. Before we move on to our first practice of the fall, which will be next week, our next spiritual discipline that we practice together in community, I wanted to add a word of encouragement to the end of our vision series, a bit of an epilogue that elaborates on how we hope to pull all that off. So with that said, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The book of the Bible, the New Testament that we call First Thessalonians, of course, I'm sure most of you know, isn't actually a book at all. It's a letter penned in the first century by a fellow called Paul, who was a Jewish rabbi turned apprentice of Jesus. And the abridged context of the letter in question is that, compelled by the Holy Spirit, Paul had paid the Macedonian province of Thessalonica a missionary visit, and said visit had gone quite well. A healthy number of Gentiles, that is, you know, non-Jewish folks, as well as some Jewish folks, had come to faith in Jesus and eventually spawned a small church in that city. Thessalonica, however, was a city that was steeped in religious levels of loyalty to the empire of Rome. See, the city of Thessalonica was nestled within the larger kingdom of Macedonia, which was home of Alexander the Great. And it was constantly targeted by Roman military might. So Macedonia was eventually invaded and overthrown and occupied by the Roman Empire. And in the wake of this new Roman era, Thessalonica was chosen as the capital city of the newly Roman Macedonian province. So that matters for this reason. For all its special treatment, there developed in Thessalonica a decidedly pro-Roman disposition. And the capital city was eventually awarded the status of a free city, meaning that Thessalonica became tax-exempt, uh, it was independently governed, it minted its own money, which is interesting. It was, it was free from Roman occupation, but all of that was contingent 
on its maintained allegiance to the Roman Empire. Or to put it another way, the people of Thessalonica could enjoy a comfortable sort of independence from Rome, micromanaging their way of life, just so long as they remembered who was really in charge. And from what we can tell, Thessalonica remembered really well. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered evidence of an imperial cult in Thessalonica, which is people who actually worshipped the emperor. Caesar Augustus' image had replaced the image of Zeus on Thessalonian coins. That's him if you don't recognize him by a casual glance. He looked weird. (laughs) Just kidding. That's his face on a coin. You get it. Uh, And there were statues of Augustus depicted as a god that were stationed all throughout the city as well. Uh, And it made the looming presence of the emperor known everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing this guy. Statues of him were everywhere. He was on your money. There were uh, temples set up for his worship. And it became something of the good news of Thessalonica. It was the gospel, the reign of Caesar. More on that in just a bit. So though Thessalonica was officially free, it was yet another city that was caught in the emperor's social network of patronage demanding homage and loyalty to Caesar. Loyalty that the city's officials would be expected to enforce legally in order to maintain the peace and keep the city well within the good graces of the emperor and maintain that sort of uh, free status. So to do so, the city leaders instituted oaths. Here's an excerpt from one of them. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus. I'm quoting this, by the way, not reciting it. I felt it important to, as I began reading it out loud, it felt real weird. Uh, I swear, they said, that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought, that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it, and whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea, and it goes on and on. Or put another way, I pledge allegiance to the flag. So... The city of Thessalonica was pagan, or not the people of God. It was pluralistic, which is a culture of many gods. It was hedonistic, uh, which means, you know, if you feel good, do it. And it was steeped in nationalistic idolatry, which reminds me of our world. It reminds me of the moment that we're in right now and where we live. So it's into this world that the Jewish rabbi turned missionary for Jesus, Paul, along with his co-worker uh, Silas and his young protege, Timothy, into this world they step. And they begin to preach a dangerously subversive message, which is, hey, we have another gospel. We have a competing announcement of a new king. There is a king, but it isn't Caesar. It's actually this peasant Jewish rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Lord. Caesar is not. And so Caesar demands all allegiance, and he demands a specific way of life, but this guy called Jesus makes a competing demand for the exact same things, all allegiance and a way of life. And Paul is going around encouraging people to choose Jesus and to reject Caesar. So naturally, Paul and his friends attract attention, and they get into trouble. And consequently, Paul gets banned from the city of Thessalonica. Now he's miles from the city limits. He can't go back there legally. And he sends an associate back to Thessalonica to kind of get a report for this new church plant to see how it's going. And to his great delight, Paul discovers the church in Thessalonica is alive and well. It didn't crumble. It didn't crash and burn. There's an issue or two like any church. But overall, the church is healthy, even in the midst of persecution. So... Paul authors the Thessalonians a letter, and he writes about Jesus' kingship and return. He's still the Lord. Caesar's still not the Lord. 
He writes about judgment coming on the world. He writes about sexuality and grief, and he writes about gratitude, and he writes about prophecy, and he writes about what it means to live in community. And eventually, like any letter, Paul's message reaches a conclusive finale, and Paul begins his goodbye with a prayer. Look down at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is the very end, and let's read beginning in verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus the King. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, from what we can tell, invocations like this one, which are sort of prayers that invite the blessing or the assistance of God, were not terribly common of letters in the ancient world. So Paul's actually up to something different here. Uh, Invocations were typically employed in liturgy or in rhetorical contexts in which a speaker might sort of draw a narration to a close by inviting a blessing in order to comfort his or her audience. But here, Paul concludes his letter to the persecuted Thessalonians by praying for them. And interestingly, this particular prayer is not unique even within the singularity of this letter. Here in chapter 5, Paul writes, we just read, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But earlier in chapter 3, Paul included a prayer that's nearly identical in language and concern to this final invocation. He wrote, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In both prayers, the emphasis is on the sanctification of the Thessalonians, that they might be holy and blameless for the return of Jesus. And one of the most fascinating elements of the prayer we find in tonight's text at the end of the letter is one largely lost in translation. See, unlike the prayer in chapter 3, which addresses the entire community of believers, Paul's prayer in chapter 5 is actually for the individual Of course, you know, as Westerners, especially Americans, our culture inclines us to sort of move the heavy lens of individualism over the scriptures by default. We tend to think of the Bible as always speaking specifically to us at all times, and we need to sort of browse and pick its, you know, contents with that supposition, presupposition in mind, because, you know, context is a killjoy. It it ruins all the inspirational Bible merchandising and social media updates when you realize most of it's not about you. But Paul's paradigm is reversed. Typically, he speaks to the community, plural, by default. But in this particular prayer, he shows a unique concern for the individual followers of Jesus in Thessalonica. Paul is, as usual, concerned for the sanctification of the church there, but it's actually more than that. He wants each and every individual believer to be sanctified through and through, not just the community as a whole. In theology, sanctification is the process by which you are made more like God, more capable of emulating Jesus and his example, or more holy. More on that word in a little while. In tonight's text, Paul presents this complicated framing of the Thessalonian sanctification because his prayer is that their whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the occasion of Jesus' return, which is something that he calls in Greek parousia. And parousia is this Greek word that often describes the arrival or the visit of a great king or an emperor, uh, which would be accompanied by this huge celebration. 
In fact, uh, parousia in some contexts was also used to describe the visitation of a deity who had come to help someone in need. And remember, Thessalonica is a culture of many gods. So Paul lifts this rhetoric of visiting or returning emperors and of visiting gods. And in his letter, he applies it to Jesus of Nazareth, a peasant rabbi who had been executed by the Roman Empire in recent memory. Think about how wacky that seems in context. Paul's talking about when a great king returns or when God himself visits. But it's also this guy, Jesus, who some of you have heard of. He was this uh, peasant rabbi. He got executed. He's back from the dead. Anyway, I just think that's incredible. So Paul prays that the Thessalonians will be made completely blameless for this triumphant celebratory return of King Jesus. And the thing is, I think we often think of the return of Jesus as the occasion on which we will be holy and blameless. That is, you know, now we are imperfect. We are locked in this lifelong arm wrestling match with our holiness and our sin, not unlike Sylvester Stallone in the hit film Over the Top. And uh, uh, which is a film about arm wrestling. And of course, in that context, you are regularly the gentleman on the left, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is going just as well as I hoped it would. Uh, you're, in, your, in your battle against sin, you often feel like the gentleman on the left. But think about it for a moment. This paradigm sort of renders sanctification itself superfluous because why arm wrestle sin when the work will inevitably be brought to completion later on? At the return of Jesus, at the resurrection, you'll finally slam the the sweaty arm of sin flat on the table. Again, not unlike Sylvester Stallone in Over the Top. And you'll be loosed from its grip forever. And while it's true that the work of Jesus is in one sense complete. Jesus died, he was buried, he raised from the dead. That was the decisive victory over death, over the devil. And in that instant, we, as his followers, when we come to faith, become holy and blameless. We become in Jesus in the language of Paul. But Paul seems to insist that we are still always moving forward in the process of sanctification, of becoming more holy all the time, of incrementally gaining holiness, slowly but perpetually overpowering our opponent's arm, to continue with the Sylvester Stallone thing. And for Paul... The degree to which he prays this process will pervade the, or pervade the Thessalonians is comprehensive. Remember, he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. And the adjective whole that Paul here employs has been found elsewhere in uh, the papyri and the inscriptions of the era and the area as a synonym for good health, which is kind of interesting. So, for example, a votive was apparently discovered that had been offered to the god Artemis for the wholeness of my feet, the person wrote on it. Uh, In the book of Acts, that same exact adjective denotes the complete healing of a person who was unable to walk previously. They were made whole. The point is, Paul is adapting this term for his purposes, and he offers this prayer that the Thessalonian spirit, soul, and body will come to moral health and wholeness. Because sanctification doesn't begin and end with your soul, you know, or it doesn't even begin and end with your mind and your thought life. It must imbue everything about us from our innermost to our outermost being. In Greek thought, in the world into which Paul wrote, the body was often depreciated or thought of as a bad thing. 
Uh, Plato, for example, described the body as a tomb. He said that it was a prison from which the soul would eventually be liberated. But Paul and the New Testament authors don't share this view at all. In fact, for Paul, there is no existence uh, without the body, ultimately. Even our physical body itself must be sanctified through and through. And our physical bodies, like the body of Jesus, will be resurrected. What Paul does linguistically here uh, with the word translated as whole is actually fascinating. So bear with me for just a moment. Maybe you don't think so, but you've got to hear it now anyway, because here it comes. Um, he actually combines two Greek adjectives to make his point. The first referring to the presence of all parts. Everything is accounted for. And the latter referring to full development or completion, like maturity. And these two terms, respectively, were often used to refer to sacrifices in the pagan world, which were required to be complete and perfect and whole in order to be effective. And the idea being that the Thessalonians are to be prepared to present themselves as worthy living sacrifices at this triumphant return of King Jesus, complete and perfect and whole and without blemish. And what's more, if you remember, Paul's audience uh, is primarily Gentile, not Jewish. So sacrifices in the pagan world were dependent on the perfection of the ritual, so it was very important, apparently. I wasn't there, but I read a lot. Uh, the knife can't slip, and the timing has to be precise, and the animal's got to cooperate in just the right way, and so on. And remember, this is how Paul ends his prayer. The largely Gentile audience, previously pagan people, are assured that in this paradigm of the sacrifice having to go perfectly, God is at work, and the sanctifying is something that God himself is going to do with them. God's desire is for the sanctification of the Thessalonians, and God is busy faithfully carrying that work to completion. So beautifully in Paul's prayer, for the wholeness of the Thessalonian Jesus followers, the onus of ultimate responsibility and credit falls on God. He writes, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And the Thessalonians who follow Jesus will be capable of carrying out the precepts that permeate Paul's letter, you know, to apprentice Jesus, to defeat sin, to live in faithful community with one another, because God will enable them to do so via his empowering presence, what we call the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians will be capable of obeying and acting all that they were taught to the degree that they are increasingly sanctified and made complete or whole. God's Spirit calls them to be blameless, and through God's Spirit, they can actually become more and more blameless. So thus, Paul ends his prayer with one of the most hauntingly beautiful lines in the entire letter, which is, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, uh, before we end tonight, I suspect something has probably occurred to more than a few of you, if you're actually listening to me talking. We, we kind of uh, furrow our brows at words like blameless, you know? You entertain the concept of being sanctified, quote-unquote, through and through, as something of a romantic ideal. We are, it seems, most of the time, intellectually incapable of fathoming for ourselves the kind of thing that Paul is praying over the Thessalonians. Even the suggestion that you can move further and further in the direction of being made holy, for many of us, requires a, a healthy employment of the imagination. And I suppose that one element of our psychological dilemma is theological in nature. If God is the one who sanctifies by you know, way of his own gracious work, what room is there to discuss our own pursuit of holiness 
as though you might actually work toward becoming blameless? Do you not simply sit back and wait for God to do it? He just zaps you and you become holy and blameless in a moment. And this is, I would argue, the wonderful and confusing both and. It is absolutely the work of God that makes us more holy by the empowerment of his spirit. And it's our hard work and effort and striving to persist in that calling that solidifies it as a reality. So if you've been around Van City uh, for more than a second, you know that this uh, often low and dismissive view of good works that's uh, often prevalent in the church is one that we find kind of confusing, more than a little misleading, and I would say even dangerous. Uh, Scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, God is the one who will make his people holy so that they will be blameless at the coming of Jesus. Of course, part of the means by which he will do this is the thinking, suffering, and struggling of the people themselves. This is the balance that we must maintain at the heart of all Christian living. To be holy is hard work, But we believe that it's God himself present in our hearts by the Spirit who enables us to get on and do it. Paul doesn't suggest that only a reasonable amount of holiness is required. It must be complete. Some Christians emphasizing the boundless love of God and the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works run the risk of underestimating the call of holiness, which Paul, who is after all the great exponent of God's love and of free justification, never did. Our awareness of a coming day when Jesus will put the world to rights is not an invitation to sit back and wait, in other words. It is an ongoing call to make the future known in the present by living into the reality of the coming kingdom of God in the here and now. And beautifully, neither our sanctification nor our being preserved as blameless, as Paul says, are are dependent on our own personal struggling for it. Paul writes himself, the one who called you is faithful, he will do it. I love the simplicity of the, and the finality of that line. It's that simple and it's that conclusive. God will bring to pass in our lives what God has already begun. And in the end, everything depends on the single reality that God is absolutely faithful. He will do it. The question then for us is how to embody both things. With everything we've discussed these last few weeks, practicing the way of Jesus together, living in community, rejecting the status quo, embodying faithfulness and discipline in a quiet life? How do we lean the full weight of our trust and belief in the faithfulness of God to bring the work he has begun to us to completion without simultaneously lapsing into either passivity or into an attempt to sort of pull it off on our own? Essentially, how do you learn to work hard while simultaneously embracing and trusting in the hard work of God? And at Van City, of course, we realize that all of our rhetoric about practicing the way of Jesus, all of our work to embrace the spiritual disciplines together in community, it can easily become, like any other thing, a sort of empty routine, just another church form. But remember, all this talk about apprenticeship, all this work to cast off the heavy shackles of our host culture when it's a negative thing, to, to live and embody a different way of life, all of our emphasis on, this, uh, emphasis on the spiritual disciplines, It's all a means to an end, and that end is God. Part of what it means to embrace all of this is the pursuit of holiness. And I I realize the term holiness is about as churchy and misunderstood as they come, but it's helpful for me 
to uh, simply think of that word in, with synonymous terms. So, so to be holy is to be different or to be unique. To be holy is to be set apart or to be dedicated to something. So naturally, to work against the grain of our wiring when it's out of alignment with the way of Jesus, to ask not how close you can get to the line, so to speak, but how close you can get to God, it calls us to a unique way of life. It calls us to be set apart or different, or dedicated to something, a way of life that is often jarring to the world around you. In a culture like ours, even I would argue in a church culture, holiness feels archaic. And it's something that we say often without really knowing what it means, or we associate the term holiness with like upright moral behavior rather than, you know, a unique way of life. You know, uh, the, the antiquated morality of the less informed and the out of date is ordinarily how we think of holiness in the here and now. Because to grow, like, to grow in generosity and emotional health, for example, uh, we can wrap our minds around that. Generosity, that's cool. Emotional health, sure, buzzword. Those pursuits are in vogue right now. You don't even have to be in church to hear about those things. Even to grow in, I would argue, in our openness to the supernatural uh, in our context through the work of the Holy Spirit, all that feels like less of a stretch than to pursue a comprehensive holiness that will inevitably situate us at deliberate odds with the ethos of the culture around us. And yet, here is the call. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus the King. And I, I believe this is something the Spirit works out in cooperation with our hard work. We have our part to play, and He has His part to play. It is an ongoing, overall reshaping of our character in aspects great and small, and it always happens alongside the family of God with accountability and community, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, so to speak. And this is why we do the practices, honestly. If, if holiness were, say, mastering the piano or the guitar, this, I did this in this, the piano or the guitar, the, the practices are like the scales. They are the lessons that form us in the shape of mastery. They are not mastery itself, but they work to get us there. This is uh, very different than simply curbing bad habits. See, listen, if, if you aim for the management of negative behaviors, then you will, uh, at best case scenario, hit temporary moral correction, which is not bad, but that we can do much better. If your aim is for blamelessness, then you are working at rewiring a character completely as the Spirit continues to sanctify you through and through. Sin management, or, you know, trying to curb bad habits, is sort of like a piano student who makes the same mistake in every part of the same exact piece every single time they play it. But rather than stopping to learn the methods and practice the scales and run the drills that will prevent that mistake, they simply try really hard to not make it as they get to that part. They try to knowingly avoid it that time, every time. And maybe that they'll get them through it once or twice, but it won't correct the character mistake that's getting them there. And I think maybe self-improvement isn't the answer. Maybe self-destruction is the answer. To rebuild from the ground up. One theologian describes it like this. I believe God's goal for us is not simply to be people who make sanctified choices, but to become people whose character and very identity is sanctified. Unlike God, whose eternal nature is to be perfect love, we can only acquire a genuinely sanctified character by repeatedly choosing the way of Jesus over all alternatives. 
We, of course, cannot choose this without God's grace, but we must nevertheless choose it. If we persist in yielding to God's Spirit and choosing sanctification, we will become a people who are by nature sanctified. I love that. Or, as Augustine famously wrote, give me the grace to do as you command and command me to do as you will. God does not call once. He continues to call daily in our every thought and deed and interaction. He calls us to the way of Jesus. Um, I have on the side, a, uh, a, I host a podcast in which, you know, film lovers are given a movie-themed discussion or a debate, and they sit down and they simply argue about it for like an hour or so. We've been doing it for years now. There's like a hundred episodes of this thing. It's a lot of fun. But in one of our earliest episodes, this occurred to me this week as I was studying, we debated how long Phil Connors, who was played by Bill Murray in Harold Ramis' 1993 comedy Groundhog Day, how long Phil Connors was trapped in the Groundhog Day time loop. Um, if you're at all familiar with the types of things that movie geeks always argue about, you know, like who shot first, was it Han or Greedo, uh, whether or not Deckard is a replicant, whether or not Cobb is still in the dream, that sort of thing, then you know that the duration of Bill Murray's stint in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania is the source of much debate. If you didn't know, it is a source of much debate. On the one side, this is a real thing, I'm not making it up for this teaching, on the one side there are short loop theorists. And they argue that Phil was stuck for maybe a handful of years, tops. And then on the other side, there are the long-loop theorists. And they believe he was probably living the same day for decades, if not centuries or more. The, don't laugh. That's the correct theory. <laughs> we can talk about it after the gathering. So... So in this podcast episode, we're arguing about all the minutiae that's been done to death. Uh, how long does it take to master the piano? How long does it take to learn ice sculpture? How, you know, to contrive the perfect date, to fall in love. And one gentleman on the show suggested that we were asking all the wrong questions. He said, instead, we should be asking, how long does it take to rebuild and reshape and solidify a man's character? Because it isn't the correction of a series of selfish mistakes that stand to break the time loop, uh, he argued. It's the process of becoming the type of person who is no longer inclined to behave selfishly, which comes about via a deliberate process of choosing thoughts, actions, habits, and more that over time enable someone to choose not to behave selfishly. Now, Certainly, a great many of us can readily point the finger at our own weaknesses, regardless of any momentum that we have in overcoming them. I think a lot of you probably know of your great wounds, of your acknowledged addictions or character flaws or personality shortcomings. But the question for this evening is, what nuances and details of who we are stifle us from being made blameless through and through? And as I considered the implications of this sort of like through and through sanctification, I began to posit the obvious question, which is where is my sanctification spotty? Where, is it, where are there lapses in me being made holy through and through? What are the blind spots? Because uh, I know the glaring personality defects that I have. I know the things that I tend to over and over again. I know that I often uh, refuse to re relinquish trivial conflict with my wife, Abby, without a resolution that I deem appropriate or logical because I'm prideful in many ways. I know that I often resent being told uh, what to do, even by good-natured people, because I am uh, rebellious. 
And I have some semblance of a visual on my overt shortcomings, I hope. And the Holy Spirit is working to convict and to correct me as I work to reshape my character. But what about the areas of which I am still unawares? Um, Recently, I've come to learn, for example, something that was not obvious to me. It was probably obvious to someone like my wife. But uh, I I came to learn that I use uh, despair uh, like a drug, you know, like an escape. Um, when I'm discouraged or when I feel rejected or bummed out, I like to, in my mind, revel in certain trains of thoughts and pick at certain uh, emotions like scabs uh, because it hurts so good to think really bleak and pessimistically and nihilistically. I, I don't know why. Um, and God made it clear to me that he's not okay with it, that it's not in keeping with who he's called me to be. Unlike myself, God is not apt to resign me to stagnation under the banner of imperfection. Hey, you're not perfect, so don't even worry about it. You're broken. It's a personality defect. That's just who you are. So I can just try really hard not to do that anymore. (laughs) Um, Perhaps I will be occasionally victorious, and inevitably I will fail from time to time. Or I can begin to train against the grain of my brokenness. I can choose practices and habits that move my personhood in a new direction. Things like worship and celebration and joy and community. And I realize that I am in many senses imperfect and broken and defected. But unfortunately for me, I can't seem to unearth some level of permission or accommodation in the teachings of Jesus that might make me comfortable with that, or, or it might make me comfortable with assuming that these things are just innate identity statements about me. Like, that's just who you are. Um, it's okay. Everyone has their stuff. You're broken. You're a sinner. And I think it's so weird, despite the post-Reformation church's love affair with ideas and terms like, oh, you're just a sinner saved by grace, the New Testament really prefers different names for those who follow Jesus. It calls you a saint. It calls you perfected, made holy, made blameless, the aroma of Jesus. The list goes on and on and on. And I see in the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures the continued call to perfection. And that doesn't mean without mistakes of any kind. It means becoming whole, all the parts being represented, become to fullness and maturity, to be healed and restored and completed more and more over time. The call to holiness and blameless In the words of Jesus himself, be perfect or whole and mature and complete as your heavenly Father is perfect or mature and whole and complete. Jesus has actually spoken this identity over you. If you follow Jesus, he says, that's who you really are, even if you behave as though it's not from time to time. That's who you really are, so be who you really are. My intellectual grasp of lapses in my holiness will not make me holy, but by partnering with the Spirit of God, by trusting in God's faithfulness, and by making every effort on my part, I can move toward holiness, even in the way that I process discouragement and rejection and so on. So I have two kids. I'm sure you've heard about them before. Uh, Abby tells me I'm hitting the limit of how often I can bring kids up. Teachers starting to sound like one of those parents, but here they come again. Um, so I have Beck. He's, he'll be four next month, and Isla is a year and some change. And uh, Beck actually seems to really love his little sister by the grace of God, 
But having a toddler around with whom communication is difficult can be particularly trying when you're four and your own capacity for communication is decidedly limited. So naturally, uh, Beck, initially, when they would come to a, a conflict in communication, his solution was just to scream or shove her over or whatever it might be. Um, and we, we can't have that. So I've been teaching him to like learn to like you know, tell me when she frustrates you, or here's some different ways that you can strategize to not shove and scream. You know, it's nonviolence 101. We're, looking, we're, we're working on it, and he's learning. But of course, learning can be a challenge when you're trying to practice the right thing, and it just doesn't yield the results you want. So just last week, this happened. Good. It's spookiness. What are you making? A spider red. What's it like? It's like real. Oh no, no. She's gonna get. No, no, no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he's doing it. He's, he didn't hit or shove. He was t trying to tell me what was happening so that I could bring it to a stop, but it was painful. It's really hard to do the right thing. Learning is difficult. And, uh, you know, I didn't scold him and say, come on, man. It's like. You're freaking out over nothing. She just pulled on the thing. We can make a new web. Uh, I, was, I celebrated the progress. You, yeah, you got upset, and yeah, you, you know, raised your voice, but hey, you didn't push and shove. That's something, and uh, I'm sure he'll make more progress. I was proud of him, and my point is that you and I are perpetually being drawn out of our old former selves and into our true identity, which is holy and blameless. God does not call once. He's always calling. The sanctifying work can't just change one thing about you and then leave other things unchanged. This work that God wants to do in you can't just change the way that you handle your finances, which would be fantastic, and God does want to, do, to change the way you handle your finances, but then it won't leave your sexuality unchanged, it will have to work on that as well. It won't be satisfied to wake you up to the needs of others around you and make you uh, generous and, and socially minded, but then leave you where you are on how you shop and where you shop and why you shop. The sanctifying work that God wants to do won't rest at instilling in you a deep concern for, say, foster children, those in need, and then leave you to the occasional night of drunken fun with your friends. The call to holiness is through and through, whole and complete, being brought to fullness, maturity, and completion more and more over time, spirit, soul, and body. So tonight, as an epilogue to our vision for the coming year, I believe there is a persistent urgency with which we are all being reminded of the call to be sanctified through and through. And I believe that the sobering reality of the Spirit of God that He wants to confront us with, that He continues to confront us with, is that God is not content with some holiness, but that as He celebrates every step, step that you take as a proud father, not standing over you and scolding you, that's not enough, you should be here, but that he continues to call you further and further into holiness like a proud father. Many of you, I think, face the nagging itch of areas in your lives in which you knowingly persist in unholiness, whether that's um, a certain habit that you have or decisions that you make, the way you spend your money, dietary choices or sexual things, whatever it might be. 
And you know what they are. We tend to know the glaring social or glaring um, personality defects that we have, our sin issues, we like to call them. And I would say the time is to repent. And that, that word simply means to choose to turn around and make a different decision, choose a different way. You know what they are, and it's time to repent. Others of you need to ask the Spirit to reveal areas in your lives in which you've been either ignorant of or complacent with a lack of holiness, and it's not obvious to you, but the Spirit wants to confront that issue in your life nonetheless, um, and it's time to turn around, to make a different decision. And no longer be content with some holiness, but desperately driven forward by the call to be blameless in your whole spirit, soul, and body. And it's not to satiate this micromanaging God who's never content, who wants you to be perfect all the time, but it's so that you might have, in the words of Jesus, life to the fullest. Or as one uh, scholar translates, the life that is truly life. And the beauty of what may seem like an unbearable assignment is actually the paradoxical way in which it is carried out. You will not be left to your own devices to carry out this work to completion. God himself, the God of peace, will carry this work out with you. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it.